Please follow along as I read. This is God's word. Mark chapter 4, verse 1. Again, Jesus began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil, and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold, and sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word And accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we give you thanks once again for your word. We give you thanks that it is true and that it is powerful and that it comes from your mouth We can trust everything you say. Thank you for your word. Thanks for this time to be in it. I pray that you would help us understand, that we would hear what you want to say, what you have already said through your son. We pray that this would be for the glory of Jesus, who is our hope and our savior and our great love. Please use this time to glorify him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when this, when this story takes place, we've been making our way through the Gospel of Mark. When the story takes place, Jesus has been going around kind of the area where he grew up, 
preaching about the kingdom of God, preaching that God is reestablishing himself as the rightful ruler of everything, that he's on the verge of finally gathering his people to himself, of righting every wrong, injustice, of healing every hurt, of wiping, wiping away every tear from every eye, that this is coming, the kingdom is coming, and he goes about preaching that people need to get ready for what God is doing. And as he goes, as he's going about preaching, everywhere he goes, he's confronted with the evidence of the brokenness of a world that's cut itself off from God. So everywhere he goes, there are people with diseases, there are people dying, uh, there are people um, who have been oppressed, afflicted by evil spirits, and everywhere he sees this, Jesus' deep compassion and his great authority go out to them, and he heals, and he casts out demons, and he sets people free. And as word about this travels, more and more people come to see him. So at first it's a few followers, and then it's crowds, and now it's great crowds, not just from the area where he was born, but from all over, from the north and the south and the east, are following Jesus wherever he goes. They, they go to the towns where he stays. They cram into the houses where they can find him. When he goes kind of away with his disciples, they follow them even to the sea and just crowd around him. They can't get enough of this, of this Jesus. Um, but they often, these crowds that follow him often don't stick around. So they come for something specific. They want to get healed or they want someone they care about to get healed or they want to see something they can tell their kids about, some kind of awesome miracle. And once they're satisfied, they go away. And that's okay with Jesus because he didn't come to draw a crowd. He came to make disciples, to call people to himself. And so at this point in the Gospel of Mark, there are these crowds growing, people hearing, people following Jesus around, but there's also conflict that we're seeing more and more openly. So Jesus' opponents, who started off by just being kind of skeptical about him, asking questions, now they've moved to all-out opposition. There's already a plan in place, just we're four chapters in, to put Jesus to death by his enemies. So We've got these great crowds and this escalating conflict, and it's all headed towards something. It's all headed towards a big confrontation. We've, we've called this uh, portion of the Gospel of Mark, this part of our preaching, royal confrontation, because it's about this meeting, this collision of two kingdoms, of the kingdom of Jesus, which he's bringing into the world, and the kingdom of the world, the old ways, the old hearts, all the people that are not ready for what Jesus is doing, for the influence of the devil in the world. And these kingdoms are colliding, and it's going to become spectacular. And so royal confrontation is the new turn in the Gospel of Mark we're starting this morning. And one of the new things that Jesus is bringing with this new kingdom, we're going to see on prominent display this morning. Because to this point, Jesus has been teaching very plainly about the kingdom, about what it means to prepare for it, about what God expects of people. He's been teaching very plainly, but this morning he begins, he incorporates something brand new. He incorporates parables, which are a new instrument, something new that he hasn't done before. In fact, this word didn't even appear in the whole gospel until the passage from last week. So here we get to our passage, Mark chapter 4. Jesus is standing by the sea teaching. And he's told his disciples to have a boat ready in case the crowds get a little bit too forceful. Because you can imagine Jesus with this crowd kind of up a hillside, and they're all pushing down 
towards him because they want to be healed and they want to be able to hear. And so they're all pressing forward. Jesus has his back to the sea, to the Sea of Galilee. And if they're not careful, they're going to tip him right in. And so Jesus has his disciples put a boat in the water behind him. When it gets a little too crazy, Jesus steps back into the boat, puts, back, puts out a little from shore, and then sits in the boat, and he can keep teaching without kind of being crowded in on, that he doesn't get crushed. So he's in the boat, and it says in chapter one, in verse 1, And a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in on the sea, and the whole crowd was gathered beside the sea on the land, and he was teaching them many things in parables. He's teaching them parables. He's telling them stories, one after another, But Mark records one that he considers to be especially significant. The parable of the sower, which is what we're going to be looking at for most of the sermon this morning. And so Jesus says in this parable, just so you can get, I mean, we read a lot of scripture. And so I want to kind of give a broad overview. Jesus says, a man went out to sow. A farmer went out to scatter some seed. And he scattered it four different places. He scattered it, some some fell on the path kind of hard-packed by people walking on it. Some fell on shallow, rocky ground where it popped up real fast. Some fell among thorns where it got choked down and couldn't produce fruit. And some fell on good ground where it grew up and produced a spectacular yield. He says 30-fold and 60-fold and 90-fold. And he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He's always calling for attention. And then he continued to teach in parables, and eventually the crowd dispersed. They went back to their homes And after a while, it's just Jesus with his disciples, with those who have gathered around him, with those we saw last week have become a family to him, those who want to do the will of God, those who go anywhere with Jesus. They're alone with him, and they say, now tell us about the parables. And they don't just mean, what did that one mean? They mean, why are you talking in parables? Why all of a sudden is it just stories and nothing straight? And we're going to get to Jesus' explanation a little bit later But then he says, in compassion, he says, let me explain the parable to you, the parable of the sower. And he says, the sower sows the word. This is about Jesus teaching being scattered. And it's scattered to all kinds of people. And some of those people bear fruit. Some of them change. Some of them grow. And some people don't. And it's a parable about why some change and some don't when they hear the same teaching of Jesus. So that, in brief, is the story What's the point? That's what we want to get after this morning. So this is a big piece of scripture. We can't touch on everything, but I want to bring out three truths Jesus teaches to help us get a big idea of what he's saying in this passage. So the first truth is that Jesus' words are intended to change you. Jesus' words are intended to change you. So remember, this is a story about a, it's about a farmer. And scattering seed isn't his hobby. It's not like, what he does when he has a little free time, wants a little relaxation. It's his job. He does it because he wants a harvest. He wants something to grow. He doesn't want those seeds to just stay seeds. He wants them to take root and pop up and produce grain, to produce a harvest. And just like that sower, Jesus, when he scatters the word, he's doing it for a purpose. He wants something to happen. He doesn't want it to just fall and everyone goes away the same. He wants it to produce a crop. So what, what does he want to happen? What kind of change does he want to happen when people hear what he has to say? His first words in the book, in the whole Gospel of Mark, are, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the Gospel. 
And so he has come with good news. He's come saying, the kingdom is close. It's coming, guys. It's coming. It's going to be so good. But he also wants something to happen when people hear that. He wants them to repent, to turn from what they're living for and putting their trust in, to repent from that and to believe in the good news, to put their trust in what he says. And we saw the same thing last week when Jesus said that his true family, his real community are those who do the will of God. He wants people, when they hear him teach, to obey what God has to say. And so the fruit that Jesus is looking for, the harvest, the change he wants his words to have is for people to believe and to obey, to believe what he says and to do what he says. So if anyone hears Jesus teach and walks away the same, the word hasn't had the effect on them it's supposed to have. It's supposed to get something done. And this is true of God's word generally, right? God doesn't, God doesn't shoot the breeze. He doesn't pass the time of day. When God speaks, he wants something to happen. He wants, he wants it to do something, and his words have power. Paul in Romans tells us that faith comes from hearing the word of Christ. It causes faith to come up in our hearts. James says that God brought us forth. He gave us life. He brought us to life through the word of truth. So the word can make people live. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for Christians to become mature, for them to be equipped for every good work. So the word makes us ready for anything. This is what the word is supposed to do. It builds us up. It makes us different. In Ephesians and Hebrews, God's word is a sword. In Jeremiah, it's a hammer and it's a fire. It's this incredibly powerful thing that makes things happen. Um, The word has power to change us. It's what it's intended to do, which is why when God calls us not just to be hearers of the word, but doers of it, to be different because we've heard God's word. Um, I think think some of us, if we're honest, think of the sermon on Sundays kind of like the instructions you get from a flight attendant when you get on an airplane. Like you, you only sort of, it's kind of noise in the background because it's the same every time and you're never going to need it, right? So you just flip through Sky Mall and kind of like wonder when you get to pull your iPad back out. Um, or you might think of it, another way to think about it, I think some people think of the sermon as like the two-hour pitch when you get a free weekend at a timeshare. So you have to, you have to, you get, you get access to all these benefits, but you know that at some point you have to sit down and listen and try not to lose all your money to this person. Um, and, and, you know, fair enough. Um, I think sometimes, you know, the sermon, I remember growing up, the sermon was the only point, I grew up in a liturgical church, the sermon's the only, like the, un- the extended, uninterrupted time when you're not standing or kneeling or saying anything or singing and the lights go down and the voice is soothing and, you know, if it's not the instructions on a flight, it's nap time, right? That can be what it is. But if the preaching, if the sermon is rooted in God's word, then God is speaking then God's word is coming through. And God's word has power. It's supposed to get something done in your life. So, Jesus' words are supposed to change you. That's the first truth. But not everyone who hears is changed. Why not? The second truth Jesus teaches is that whether you change depends on your heart as you hear. Whether you change depends on your heart as you hear. And this is what he's saying when he talks about the four different kinds of soils, right? In the passage, 
There's not good seed and bad seed. There's one kind of seed and four kinds of soils, four places that it falls. And some places it bears fruit and some places it doesn't. And the problem isn't with the seed, it's with where the seed fell. And the same is true of Jesus' teaching, right? Jesus, when Jesus teaches, it's God's word, and God's word has no deficiency, right? God's word is how he, how he created the universe, right? There's nothing more impressive that words have ever done. There's no deficiency in God's words. They work just fine. The deficiency is in the hearers. So these four kinds of soils are four different hearts, four different hearts of people hearing Jesus speak. They all hear, but they don't all change, And so Jesus identifies that three of them have problems, which is why the word doesn't bear fruit. So the first problematic kind of heart you can have when you hear Jesus' words is hard hearts. And this is in verse 15. He says, And these are the ones sown along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. So these seeds fell on a path, right, that's been hard-packed. It's hard ground. The seeds don't, they don't sink in like they're supposed to, nestle into the soil and take up the nutrients and grow. They just lie there inviting birds to come and feast on them, to come and take them away. And he says in the same way, when people have hard hearts, the word doesn't penetrate. The word doesn't come in. The word just lies there and Satan comes and takes it away, which I think is a little terrifying, right? To think that when you hear God's word, that Satan is just waiting for that word to kind of rest so immediately he can pull it away and make you not think about it anymore. Um, So how does Satan do that? How does he take away the word? He's got multiple weapons that he can use. And the first is he can distract you. So you're kind of sitting, half listening to the sermon, and all of a sudden it's incredibly urgent that you make a plan for what you need to do first thing tomorrow at the office. Or you suddenly need to think about whether you have everything you need to make lunch. Like he can distract you and start making you think about something that's totally unrelated to what you're hearing. He can also spring temptation upon you. So you're sitting there listening to the sermon. All of a sudden you notice out of your eye someone you've, you've, like, you've forgotten that you were mad at. But when you see them, you suddenly think, oh, I forgot I was supposed to be mad at that person. Or you see someone... That's in a life stage you wish you were in. You see someone with kids and you wish you had kids or married and you wish you were married or single and you wish you were single and all of a sudden envy creeps in. And you're not thinking about the sermon anymore. You're thinking about that. And he can use deception. He can use deception. So you're listening to the sermon and all of a sudden objections start to rise in your heart against what you're hearing. And it's him snatching away the word. So a hard heart might show itself as kind of skepticism. You might feel skeptical about everything. Nothing really gets in because there's always a reason not to listen and to disregard it. Or it might feel like, a hard heart might feel like, I never get anything out of the word. Whenever I read it, whenever I hear it preached, it just doesn't do anything for me. I just walk away and and nothing ever changes. Um, And sometimes that might be the fault of the preacher. I (laughs) I don't want to remove that as a possibility, but it's not always Sometimes the problem is the heart. So the second problem, first problem, hard hearts. Second problem, shallow hearts. And this is the seed that fell in the shallow, rocky soil. And he says in verse 16, And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. So you can have bad soil in your heart and still love to hear the gospel preached. 
These people love hearing the Christian message. They love thinking that God loves them. They love thinking that they're saved by what Jesus has done, not by what they've done. They love coming to church. Everyone's so nice here. We get to sing. It's great. They love it for a while. For a while. They love it as long as it's easy and it feels good. But, verse 17, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. So they liked it at the beginning, but they don't like the hard stuff about Christianity. The sins you have to turn from in order to have more of Jesus. They don't like that the times that they have to stay silent when other people want them to engage in gossip, or the times they have to speak up when other people say untrue things about God. They don't like the hard things, the costly things. And, and I mean, if, if we're honest, most of us don't wholeheartedly like the hard things about Christianity. But for these people, the costliness is too much. It's not worth it anymore. The difficulty makes it no longer worth it. Bearing fruit costs too much, and they don't have roots down deep that help them persevere. So after a while, they're gone. And the third kind of heart that doesn't bear fruit from Jesus' teaching is the overcrowded heart. The heart where love for God has so many competitors that it, that it never becomes what it was supposed to be. And he, Jesus singles out three different examples or ways to think about the things that crowd into our hearts. He calls the, the first, he says, is the cares of the world. He says, and others are the ones sown among thorns in verses 18 and 19. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. So the cares of the world is being anxious about the here and now, being anxious about about the, the matters of this time and this place, about how to get a better review at work, about, um, about how, where you're going to find the money to repair the car, about how to get someone's attention that you're trying to attract. Our minds can be so set on things of the world that we never think about what's real and eternal and solid. And he also mentions the deceitfulness of riches, the deceitfulness of riches. Money lies. It lies to us. It makes empty promises that if we have enough of it, we'll have everything we want. We'll finally be content and able to rest. We'll finally have untouchable joy. We'll be safe. Money will protect us. Money will help us live forever. It promises what only God can give. And when we start believing its promises and looking to it to give what only God can give, then money becomes our God and the word is choked out. There's a reason Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person enter the kingdom of God because money chokes the word. And the final thing he specifies is desires for other things. And this word desires is translated other places as lusts. It's, it's desires that have gone overboard, that have become too great. It's like nice-to-haves, like I would like to have a little bit bigger house. It'd be nice to have a newer car that didn't break down. It'd be nice to have obedient children that lift, listen once in a while. And those things become need-to-haves. I can't live unless I have this house. I can't live unless I have this car. I can't live if my kids talk back. The desires have become lusts, needs. Your daydreams, your ambition, your energy, your imagination are caught up with stuff, not with God. And so, I mean, I've only lived here for three months, but from what I've seen, I think this overcrowded heart 
Maybe the one most problematic for us at sunrise. This, there's, here in Cayman, money is everywhere. It's everywhere. There's so much allure in a home on the water, in an expensive holiday, in making partner at work. There's so much that can tie us to the things of the world, to the office, and to the beach, and to the things that a little bit more can give us. There's always a reason not to be here on Sunday morning. There's always a reason to spend or to save your money when you could give it. There's always a reason. But we as a church have an opportunity to stand close to that culture, but outside of it, and to testify that what we want more than anything is not a job or a house or a leisurely lifestyle. We want Jesus. We want to know God and bear fruit for him. As Asaph said it in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you, God? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God is my portion. God is my inheritance. If I get God and nothing else, I get everything. And if I get everything else and not God, I get nothing. God is what I want. So there are three hearts, the hard heart, the shallow heart, the overcrowded heart that don't bear fruit. But by God's grace, there are also good hearts, soft hearts which hear the word, verse 20, and accept it and bear fruit and lots of fruit, 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. So how is your heart? Did God stir anything while we were looking at those four kinds of hearts? The greatest danger is, of course, for anyone who has such a hard heart or a shallow heart or overcrowded heart that they've never trusted God at all, that they've never turned to him, they've never been born again. That's the greatest danger. But even for us who have trusted in Christ, our hearts can still retain a little bit of this. We can have hard-ish hearts that don't don't get a lot out of the word or shallow-ish hearts that shrink from hard things that happen to us because we're Christians, or overcrowded-ish hearts where God's word is sometimes a priority, but everything else crowds it out a lot of the time. Is this present for you today? It was, this was really helpful for me to examine myself this week as I was preparing this sermon. Why do you come on Sunday mornings? Do you come to be blessed, to feel better, to have kind of a spiritual charge at the beginning of your week? Or do you come to encounter God and be changed by him? Do you come to experience God's transforming power through the word? And he doesn't always change you the way you want to be changed. Jacob wrestled with God all night and wouldn't let him go until he blessed him. And Jacob walked away with a limp. That was not the change he was hoping for. But God changed him. He humbled him. So, why do you come on Sunday mornings? Because we need to be changed. All of us need to be changed. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's true of me. We need God to work on us every day, and the way he works is through his word. So we've looked at the parable and its meaning. We've seen that Jesus' words are intended to change us, and that whether we change depends on our hearts as we hear. We've looked at the parable, but we haven't seen why Jesus teaches in parables at all. Remember the question from verse 10, 
And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. Why do you teach like that? Why do you just use stories and you never, you never bring out the moral? You never tell us the point. I can imagine the disciples with Jesus in the boat. He's teaching the crowds and it's just story after story with no point. And they think, man, he's losing them. Jesus, are you sure that an obscure farming anecdote is the right way to go at this moment? Jesus, they're, they're leaving. You've got to say something clear, man. You've got to say something they understand or you're going to lose them. And these people just one after another, after parable after parable, they're not seeing any miracles, they just go. And then later he explains it to them and they think, why couldn't you have just said it that way to them? Why couldn't you have told them what the parable was about? Why the stories? Well, Jesus' answer shows us the third and maybe most surprising truth from the passage, which is parables show what kind of heart you have and push you, firmer, push you further in that direction. They show what kind of heart you have and they push you further down that road. So I think it's easy to think of parables when we read them having already kind of known what they're about, thinking Jesus is such a good teacher. He uses these these easy-to-understand pictures and he helps people understand with these illustrations drawn from real life. And that's only half true of parables because it works that way for some people, but it doesn't work that way for everyone because this is what Jesus says in verse 11. He says to his disciples, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. So he talks here, he says there are two different groups he's teaching for. One of them is, To you has been given the secret of God. To you, my disciples, those who have gathered around me, my family, to you has been given the secret. So there's a secret about the kingdom. There's truth that not everyone knows. It's secret for a time. And the secret is, the secret of the kingdom is that Jesus is the king. Jesus has been teaching a lot about the kingdom. He's been teaching about what that means and about God and what God expects. He's not been teaching a lot about himself. And the demons, when, when he confronts demons, they run down before him, fall on the ground, and they say, I know who you are. You're the son of God. You're the holy one of God. And Jesus silences them because he's not ready to be known like that to everybody. Not everybody is ready to hear who he is. But his disciples know what the crowds don't. They know that Jesus is the one in whom the kingdom is coming, that Jesus is the one where it's happening. Jesus is where it's at. He's the key. So they understand the secret, and he's able to be more open with them. He can explain to them the parable, and they get it. But that's not how, everyone doesn't get the explanation, right? Everybody else left without ever hearing it. They just got the parable. He says, to those outside, everything is in parables. They don't get the explanations. They just get the stories, and they don't know exactly what to do with them. They leave them puzzled. And he says that the reason is so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. So in your Bibles, that verse 12 is in quotation marks. And it might be kind of set off from the rest, like it's a poem. And it's because it's a quotation from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 6. So in Isaiah 6, Isaiah has just had one of the defining experiences of his life. He's had this vision of the Lord 
seated on a throne, high and lifted up, a vision of God, great in holiness, a vision of God, great in mercy. Isaiah is totally undone by it. And then God says, Isaiah, I'm looking for someone to preach. And Isaiah says, I'll do it. I'll do anything. Here I am. Send me. I will do anything for this holy, merciful God. And God gives Isaiah his marching orders, which is where that quotation comes from. So let me read Isaiah 6, verses 9 to 12. And God said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, Isaiah, How long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. So God says, here's a job description nobody wants. He says, I want you to go to preach to this people and your preaching is going to push them further and further away until I judge them. And an enemy nation comes in, destroys the land, destroys the temple, destroys the cities, and takes them away, and the land lies desolate. You know, off you go. Go preach until the judgment comes. That's Isaiah's call. And it's because the people had already turned away from God. They were worshiping other gods. They were looking to foreign kings to keep them safe rather than God himself. Their hearts had already turned from him, and God said, Isaiah, I'm sending you to preach to push them further away because I've already decided to bring judgment upon them. He was going to give them over to what they really wanted, which was was not him, which was to be far from him. And Jesus says here, in quoting Isaiah, that that's what the parables are in part to do as well. To those who have already turned from God, who have already found Jesus lacking, who don't want to understand, who just came to see a show, he says the parables are going to push them further away. But to those who want to understand, who want to be with Jesus, who want to stay and ask him questions, the parables will help them understand. The parables will bring them in. This is how he says it in verses 24 and 25. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use in your hearing, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So if you listen generously, you will will receive understanding generously. More will be given to you. If you want to understand, you will. If you don't want to understand, you won't. To the one who has, more will be given. From the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So parables are this They're a very specific kind of instrument. They have this exact function, which is why Jesus all of a sudden starts using them in his teaching. They don't state the truth plainly. They put the truth at arm's reach. Not out of reach, so you can't understand, but far enough away that you have to work at it. You have to think and pray. You have to linger with Jesus and ask him questions in order to get the meaning. They're not nonsense, but they're also not obvious. You don't get them the first time you hear them. You have to have soft hearts, good soil to receive the word. And those who want to understand, to them, the parables will open up the meaning. And this is where, 
You know, when we hear people say the parables are a brilliant teaching technique, where we can agree with them, that's right. Once you understand the parables, like the parable of the prodigal son, right, it, it opens God's love in a beautiful and profound way, unlike almost any other passage in the Bible. But you don't get it the first time you read it. Or the parable of the treasure hidden in the field. It shows us what it means to receive the kingdom as valuable as it is. But you don't get it the first time. It takes time to understand. These parables will show what's in our heart. They'll show if we want to understand or if we just came for a good time. Because if you want to understand, you'll stay. And if you just came for a good time, sooner or later, you'll walk away. It'll push you further away. To the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. There's an old saying, there, there are these, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Puritans. They get a bad rap. They're basically English Christians in like the 17th century. And they had a saying about parables. They said, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. The same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. The sun is the same for everything, but what it does to you depends on what you are. If you're ice, it melts. If you're clay, it hardens. And that's how parables are. They're the same for everyone, but what they do to you depends on what kind of heart you have. And this, all this idea that parables can actually push people away, this raises red flags for people, right? Because it sounds like they're saying, Jesus doesn't want people to understand. Jesus wants to push people away. Jesus wants to harden people's hearts. And you think, isn't Jesus supposed to be loving? Isn't he the most loving person who ever lived? Why would he push away and conceal the truth from people who need to hear it? And we can say a couple things about this. The first is, Jesus is loving, but he's not just loving. He's also just. He's righteous. And these, these are not innocent people who, if they just had a chance, would trust him and love him and believe what he says. These are people who have already found him lacking, whose hearts are hard, who wouldn't receive the word anyway. And so he preaches in parables to push them further away, to disperse the crowds so he can focus on the disciples. But I think an even better way to think about it, a better, a more helpful way to think that's, I think, beautiful, is to ask, what is Jesus' purpose in pushing people away? Why does Jesus have to be rejected? Why does he want some people to turn against him? It's because he had to be rejected. He had to be accused and arrested and condemned and killed so that he could save. He had to push some people away so they would reject him, so they would turn against him, so they would put him to death in order that by his death he could make salvation available to everyone. We know that after Jesus died and was raised, thousands of people in Jerusalem who had been a part of the crowd who called out for his blood, who had rejected him and hated him, they became Christians. They trusted in him. They received the secret of the kingdom. They received Jesus as king. He had to be rejected so that he could bring the good news to everybody. And even then, even when many in Jerusalem trusted in him, many didn't. And they kind of pushed the apostles out of town. They ran them out of town. And then the gospel went further to the Gentiles, to people that had never known the God of Israel, all because Jesus was rejected. Now everyone in the world, people in the Cayman Islands and in Africa and in Asia and everywhere people live, the kingdom is opened to them. The secret isn't a secret anymore. 
And it was never supposed to say secret forever. This is what Jesus means when he says in verses 21 and 22, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand. For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest. Nor is anything secret except to come to light. The secret had to be a secret for a time so that he could accomplish his purpose on earth. But it, that's, not what it, that's not what the truth is for, right? A lamp, to use his image, there are reasons why you might conceal the light of a lamp for a time. You might want to put your hand up around the lamp to protect it from the wind, like when you just lit it, or you might want to hide yourself from someone so you conceal the lamp. But the point of a lamp is not to be hidden. The point of a lamp is to shine. And the same is true of the truth that Jesus teaches. He conceals the truth for a time from certain people, but that's not the point of truth. The point of truth is to be known and loved and accepted. The secret is no longer a secret. Everyone, even those who have been far from him, even those who rejected him, now, because he died and rose, can trust in him. So we've seen three truths Jesus teaches in this passage. His words are intended to change you. Whether you change depends on your heart as you hear. And thirdly, Jesus' parables show what's in your heart and push you further in that direction. So what's the message of the passage as a whole? In a nutshell, those who hear and accept Jesus' teaching will be rewarded with more of Jesus himself. Those who hear and accept Jesus' teaching will be rewarded with more of Jesus himself. His teaching doesn't benefit everyone. It falls on good and bad soil. But those who hear it and who accept it receive more understanding, receive more knowledge. But the greatest gift of understanding what Jesus says, the greatest gift of understanding the Bible, isn't just knowledge. The greatest gift is having more of Jesus. This word, this book, is how Jesus gives himself to us. It's how, he, it's how he opens our eyes to see his glory and his beauty. He is what it's all about. He's the secret of the kingdom. And he offers us to himself here. Every time you open the Bible, every time you listen to a sermon, it's Jesus giving more of himself away to his people. Maybe you've realized this morning that your heart isn't soft to the point that the word has never borne any fruit in your life. You've never changed because of it. God can give you a new heart If you ask him, he can bring you to life by the word of truth. Maybe you have experienced some change in the past, but but the worries of life have crowded in, or a hard season pushed you away. God is ready. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness if we ask him. Whatever your situation this morning, whatever my situation this morning, we have reason to ask God, to use his word to bear fruit in our lives for his glory. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we want your word to have its effect on us. We want your word to change us. We want to love Jesus more and treasure him more. We want to obey him better so that he is more glorified. We want, we want to reach this island and this world for him, that more would know and praise him. And so, Have your way with us. Give us hearts that receive your word, that accept it and treasure it and live it and be glorified in Sunrise Community Church. In Jesus' name, amen.